This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips, share our best stories, and confide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. This is episode 94 of Sorta Awesome, and before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to ask you if you have ever signed up for the Sorta Awesome newsletter. Because if you have never signed up, this would be a good time to do that. Every weekend, I send out a short newsletter with notes from me about our most recent episode, as well as links to all kinds of awesome that you can find elsewhere. Now, we have some fun things coming up in the spring, and we want to make sure you don't miss out on any of that. So to get yourself signed up, go over to our website, sortaawesomeshow.com, and click on newsletter to get all signed up. Well, you guys, I am incredibly excited about this week's episode. I'm joined today by my dear friend and lovely co-host, Kelly Gordon, and we have managed to get Kelly's husband, Corey, to sit down with us this week as well. So hello to Corey and Kelly. Hello, Megan. Hey, awesomes. So glad to have you both here with me today. So yes, if you're keeping track, this means now that all four of our sort of awesome husbands or the sort of awesome dudes, as they are sometimes known, have now been on the show. So it's kind of a historic episode today. Uh, you all know Kelly quite well. So let me go ahead and introduce you a little bit to her husband, Corey. Corey is currently the Chief Development and Stewardship Officer at the American Diabetes Association. He's been involved in marketing and corporate leadership for more than 25 years, working mostly with NGOs or non-governmental organizations for the past decade. Corey has served on the board for the Christian Alliance for Orphans for six years and counting, where he is able to lend his unique experience and insight because he was adopted from South Korea in the mid-1970s. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to settle in and have some real talk about adoption. We asked the awesome community for questions and topics you might like to see covered. And oh my goodness, did you come up with some great questions. We are going to do some adoption myth busting to clear up some myths and misunderstandings about adoption. We're going to talk about international and domestic adoption, and we're going to discuss ways to support children and families, even if you yourself are not in a position to foster or adopt children. 
Oh my gosh, that is so much. And we're going to get to all of that in just a moment. But first, we're going to go ahead and start this show the way we always do with Awesome of the Week. And Corey, I know that you have prepared an awesome to share with us this week. I can't wait to hear it. Um, I'm sorry, Megan. I thought I was the Awesome of the Week. <laughs> well, there is that, definitely. <laughs> do, we, do we forget to mention that he's an INTJ? <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know, too. It is. Okay, so Megan, uh, one of the aspects of my life is that I travel quite a bit. I'm on, yes. on the road consistently. Last year, I put on over 130,000 miles in the air and 6,000 miles on my car. So it oh shows you how much I travel versus drive. So something that is awesome that was really amplified this past week when I was running late at the airport and I thought I was going to miss my flight is a program called Clear. Uh, okay. People have heard of TSA Pre. And mm -hmm. people who have lived in the Denver area and have gone through the Denver airport have heard of CLEAR for some time. But it has just only recently begun to really take a national scope where you can find CLEAR in more and more airports around the country. And if you, don't want, if you travel a lot and don't want to stand in lines, you need to get CLEAR. Now, TSA Pre, when it first came out, enabled people to be uh, have their background check, registered, et cetera, so they could avoid the long lines that most people hate in airports. But because pre TSA Pre has become so popular, TSA Pre lines have gotten to be fairly long now <laughs> at the busier airports. Now, the beauty of CLEAR is that you can do that in addition to TSA Pre. And so this past week when I was running uh, so far behind at the airport, I literally, from the time I parked my car at the airport and was on the through the other side of security was less than five minutes because there was oh, zero wow. line at Clear. So Clear is you sign up, it you enroll for the program, you put to you put register your biometrics like your eye scan or your fingerprints. It still ties in with the background checks, and uh, you go through Clear. And instead of having this long queue at TSA Pre where you have to have your ID checked and your boarding pass checked, there are kiosks. There's an agent with a kiosk. You put in your biometric read. You scan your boarding pass. You show that you're TSA pre, and immediately you go right through the line and bypass all the uh, all the lines altogether. You still go through the TSA pre security clearance, so you don't have to get all your things out. You don't have to have your cavities checked, etc. <laughs> but the beauty of it is you get to go through. And since Clear is so relatively new across the country. It doesn't matter whether you're traveling out of Minneapolis, St. Paul, whether you're out of the D.C. Reagan Airport, New York, Atlanta, you're able to just fly through security and avoid the line. So that is truly awesome when you're running behind. Absolutely. That's a special kind of magic, it sounds like, getting people through those lines more quickly. Well, and I have to add, because I looked it up when he was talking about it, because I had not heard about it at all. It's available in 17 airports right now. It will be in LA soon, so that will make it 18. So, you know, the big, biggest, busiest airports out there. But even if you're not TSA pre, like Corey is as well, what it does is it bypasses you from that initial line, right? You don't have to wait in the herding <laughs> pens yes. where you know it's just to get up to a TSA agent who just is checking your ID. Mm -hmm. Once you're just going to have to bypass that line, you still have to go through, like he said, whether you're TSA pre and you don't have to go through quite so much hassle or you're not and you still have to go and take out your liquids or take off your shoes. But it's going to get you to that front of the line, right? Mm -hmm. So what, yes. a, what a cool thing. Now, it's not exactly cheap. <laughs> It's not inexpensive, and it's an annual fee. However, there are a couple of things that you can do about it. First of all, again, for those who travel regularly, if you have status on an airline, chances are likely you're either able to get 
heavily discounted or complimentary clear membership because of your status. So with Delta, I have status, so I don't have to pay the high fees that the rest of you peons will have to pay. <laughs> um, now, the other thing, too, is that many credit cards, as a part of their benefits and value, will offer discounted or uh, free uh, memberships like that. That is fantastic. Corey, thank you so much for that. I know we have lots of awesomes who do a lot of traveling, so I know that's going to be helpful for many, many people. Well, my awesome of the week this week is magic of a different kind, a more uh, traditional kind of magic, the Disney kind of magic. Mm-hmm. Over the weekend, I took my girls to see Beauty and the Beast, the Bill Condon-directed live-action feature of that classic Disney animated musical starring Emma Watson most famous for playing Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter series as Belle and Dan Stevens, once of Downton Abbey, currently in FX's Legion as the Beast, and just lots of other incredible people in the cast. So Daisy and AJ, my 12-year-old and 9-year-old daughters, we went to see it in the theater over the weekend. The three of us have been looking forward to seeing this movie since we saw the very first trailer for it. And so we were so excited to finally get to see it in the theater I have to tell you, it did not disappoint. All three of us absolutely loved it. I personally have had the soundtrack to that movie memorized since I was a teenager, Mm -hmm. so it really took all of my self-control to not sing along (laughs) out loud in the theater. You should probably have sections, you know, like singing section over here. I know. (laughs) I was thinking it was the perfect movie I would have loved to have done, like gone to a sing-along showing of it so that we could all just enjoy singing along together. But hearing those classic songs performed by new voices was just so much fun. And it really is. This movie is filled with all kinds of Disney magic. All of the big numbers are played really, really big. So everything from Belle's opening song to Gaston's song. And of course, Be Our Guest, probably one of the most famous songs from that soundtrack. Their rendition of Be Our Guest Alone is reason enough to see this movie in the theater, I think. So it was just delightful through and through and absolutely my awesome of the week. And it was so awesome to get to experience it with my girls as well. So we had a great time with that. Yeah. I've heard so many good things. My kids can't wait to go. It is fantastic. So good. So very Disney. I loved it. So, all right, now we're going to switch gears entirely and dive into this topic, which I know we are going to have so much ground to cover to talk about all things adoption today. But before we kind of get into the questions and some of the myths and misunderstandings, Corey, I would really love if we can just start with your story, um, what this has, how this has played out in your life, if you can just kind of back us up to the beginning for you and tell us your story, and then we'll dive into the questions that the awesomes have given us. Sure. Thanks, Megan. So my story is uh, interesting in that Oftentimes, some of the most basic questions that people may have for you, such as, how old are you? What nationality are you? When's your birthday? It's not that I'm being evasive, but I keep saying, honestly, I don't know. And it's because um, I was uh, born in South Korea as an American GI baby, but abandoned at birth. And so when I was actually born is a bit of a mystery. Uh, what type of nationality fully I am is, a, again, a bit of a mystery. You'd probably have to cut off my leg and count the rings to determine how old I am. And, you know, it was great when I was dating because girls would say, how old are you? And I could say, how old do you want me to be? Because I can be flexible here. Um, 
And so, you know, so the reality is, you know, as I was one of the classic uh, street kids and American GI babies that uh, um, were an aftermath of the Korean War. Now, I'm not so old that I was in the Korean War, but, uh, you know, many American adoption agencies, in fact, or even child sponsorship agencies were actually founded because of so many street children, the, the plight of orphans because of the aftermath of the Korean War. And so I was one of those. So it's believed that my father, biological father was an American GI, that my biological mother was a Korean woman, and that obviously somebody had to have taken care of me as an infant, because an infant needs care. And so it's believed, again, that my maternal grandmother uh, may have taken care of me until she uh, became too old to do so. But my earliest memories really are of uh, living on the streets, and um, uh, all of that comes with that in terms of your stereotypical street children, hunger, disease, um, uh, fear, abuse, uh, uh, parasites. You know, there were times I remember coughing and gagging, pulling worms out of my mouth because the worms were leaving me, trying to find more food, and all of that. And, you know, the cold. Uh, uh, South Korea has winter, so I remember going through winters without shoes or socks and not enough clothing. So cold is something that I'm not still today a fan of because I think uh, uh, the visceral uh, response memories from uh, from back so long ago. And, you know, everything that's basically a kid does for survival. And really, that's probably the earliest memory is just survival. How do you survive? How do you uh, keep from uh, uh, getting hurt? Uh, how do you scrounge for food? Those types of things. And then uh, it all changed when uh, this car pulled up. Now, where I lived, the cars were kind of a meant a luxury item and two guys came out they lured me to the car with a bag of candy grabbed me threw me in the back seat of the car and drove me off and uh, that sounds like scary probably for most people but they took me to this great big institution again i was a little kid so think about it, it was a big institution and it was they took me to a, uh, an orphanage and for me, that orphanage experience was like dying and going to heaven because, first of all, I didn't know what an orphanage was, but there was all these other kids, obviously mm -hmm. a lot of adult authority figures, and that at first scared me because adults typically for a street kid is a bad thing. Um, sure. And so um, it was uh, it was a, obviously a scary moment. But when you think about three meals a day, think about warmth and shelter clothes, you know, some of the basic uh, uh, fundamentals that most of us don't even think about, you know, those were all just luxury items, if you will. And so having the, it being in a safe environment where there is no abuse, where there are other children, even though because of my background, I, you know, I didn't attach well, I didn't exactly make friends with kids in that type of, you know, you take kids to a park today and they plan with each other because um, as um, a G American GI baby in, in a country that is very, very proud of its heritage and homogenous where you know your family and your lineage and your pedigree, so to speak, a street kid, a, a GI baby, uh, you know, a mixed race, you know, adoption, I mean, a child like that, even today in South Korea and many Asian countries, that is still a bad thing. There is still a lot of prejudice. And so because of it, you know, you're, you're alone. You're an outcast. You're ostracized. So at the, uh, in the orphanage to realize that I wasn't an only one like that, obviously that can also help in terms of, uh, the support and just being around other people and not being in an environment where I was always treated as the outcast. 
So that, so, you know, at the, went to the, um, I said the orphanage and that was also the first time where I had any type of, uh, medical attention. And, um, I was, uh, riddled as expected with, as a street kid, riddled with diseases and parasites, open sores, all that kind of fun stuff, malnutrition. And so an orphanage literally was for, in my case, a, a wonderful thing. You know, a lot of people think about orphanages and think how oh, those, it's, it's, it's a tragedy that kids are in that. And my, perspective is a little bit different in the fact that yes it is a tragedy that kids have to be in an orphanage but in my case being an orphan in an orphanage was far better than being on the streets sure so um you know so i spent some time at the orphanage as i said and it was kind of a, a an idyllic moment if you will in, in my life during that time at the orphanage wasn't there very long and uh, i to this day i remember the orphanage director coming up to me and giving me a photo and uh, that photo is, you know, etched in my memory. It was uh, this massive house. This was huge house. There were uh, there was two adults. There was this little Korean girl, and amazingly, there were two cars in the driveway. Ah, uh huh. And better than anything else was the orphanage director said, "You have been adopted, and you're going to America." Now, somewhere along the line, the for all of us orphans in the orphanage. America was the ultimate nirvana. Oh, wow, okay? yeah. That was the dream of everybody in that orphanage, the magical words where you've been adopted, which is wonderful. That meant you had you were going to go to a home. But beyond that, America was the dream. So even at that age, even in that type of a setting, America had this mystique. Mm. And um, and what was what's also comical is that apparently, I don't recall, but apparently I must have seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the movie, because in the driveway was the red car, which meant in America that car could fly. So that was just really amazing. <laughs> so it was, again, for all, so I, for that was the brightest moment that I can remember in my life. You know, that was just the happiest moment. I was the envy of the other kids because not only was I going to America, I was being adopted by a family. They had this massive house because, again, American homes in that setting, yes. it was just like a mansion, a palace with a flying car. I mean, it couldn't get any better than that. <laughs> and it's not even that big of a house, really. Like, it was a very, it's a very common American sized house. It's, it's, but, a, it's a modest 2,000 square foot right, home. Right, but it yes. seemed huge. Yes. 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 Um, so then from there, the process was daunting because yet I had to go through a lot of uh, medical exams and things like that. And, you know, I'm not going to say much about pejoratively about the adoption process and the paperwork and all that. I'm just going to say getting me adopted was apparently the, the goal because the documents that the my parents received through the adoption process was that I was this healthy, well-adjusted young boy. The reality is that I pretty much failed every medical clearance exam possible because when I flew over, my parents took the first thing they had to do was take me to uh, uh, the doctors. And I, my first experience of America's really was the insides of dental clinics and medical clinics. And my parents had to burn the clothes that I was wearing because, again, I was riddled with diseases, mm. had parasites, still had open sores, and uh, clearly was not a healthy, well-adjusted uh, young boy. And... It was uh, it was very challenging because uh, my parents had no idea what they were getting into. Sure, they had adopted a Korean girl, a hundred percent Korean girl, not related to me, but they had adopted her as an infant, mm. pretty much straight from the hospital. Got her 
uh, you know, that family was the only family she ever knew. And, you know, taking in a little infant, it was such a beautiful thing and wonderful thing. They said, great, we want to do this again. We want to adopt a boy. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just say they adopted her first. Then they adopted me. After they adopted me, they stopped the adoption process mm-hmm. altogether. And they didn't adopt anybody. They else. didn't adopt mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. But they thought they were getting this healthy, young, well-adjusted young boy. They did not know they were getting an older street kid, an American GI basically street thug who was diseased, malnourished, didn't trust anybody, and whose focus was survival, not, oh, I want to cuddle up to mom and dad. Right. And so it was a it was a, a significantly challenging, and to their credit, they stayed with it because uh, the initial few weeks, months, even years perhaps, uh, were so difficult that the thought of just hitting the eject button, I know, came up frequently, and it was hard. They had to fight through it. And, uh, but, uh, and they, you know, back then when I was adopted, there just wasn't the resources that are available today. Absolutely. There wasn't people like a Karen, Dr. Karen Purvis, who's done phenomenal research to show adopted children, orphans, they're going, they are going to be different because their brains are literally wired differently than a biological child. And so you cannot treat them in that it's going to be the same situation. And especially a child who comes from the, proverbial hard places like I did, adoption is going to be much different than for like my younger sister who came straight from the hospital. It's going to be a completely different dynamic. So some examples of, you know, things that my parents, you know, they just didn't get good advice was, well, he's having difficulty adjusting because first of all, I was adopted into the Scandinavian family. So I went from these little Asians to a six foot six Norwegian giant who was scary looking. He was so massive, right? To, uh, To a boy coming from that setting. And they said, the reason why he's having such difficulties, he's not used to this culture. So you need to immerse him into the culture that he's accustomed to. Uh-huh. Now, that was terrible advice for me because the culture I was accustomed to, well, in that culture, I was the streak, I was the ostracized outcast. Mm. I was the untouchable. I was the one that nobody wanted. So I was a reject from that culture. So to try to put me back into that culture made me completely revolt. Sure. Um, my parents, again, they didn't understand what it meant to be an American GI baby. What they figured out was it must have been bad because every night I woke up screaming with uh, night terrors. I was terrified of strangers. The very first day they tried to take me to school, I tried running away because all I saw were all these children, all these adult authority figures, this institution, and what it signified to me is I had failed again. Aww. They were getting rid of me. Yes. Okay. They'd had enough of me. Now I was, I was being outcast once again by these uh, these parents. So it took many weeks and months of every day going and every day having my parents there, picking me up, taking me back home, reinforcing that I was now in a permanent home before I began to settle down. But what's interesting is that they really didn't, it didn't really sink in because even though they dealt with counselors who said, take him into this culture and et cetera, it was ironic how we were at a family camp and at the family camp, there was a rifle range. And the, the guy who ran the rifle range was a former mercenary, a former, literally a former Merc. Oh, wow. And so you got this toughened former Merc running the a rifle range. He's very <laughs> irreverent, very kind of uncouth, but, you know, great for a rifle range. And he took one look at me and he said, that's a GI baby, isn't he? Because <gasps> oh, my wow. parents look nothing like me. And he said, that's a GI baby, isn't he? And they said, yes, he is. And he said, you will never know the hell that he's had to endure. Oh, wow. And he took me under his wings for that entire week. So imagine, again, this hardened mercenary 
And whether it's, you know, guilt maybe on his side, because who knows what he'd, he'd done and, you know, was there any type of how many children had he left behind? Who knows what the story was, but the way he took me under his wings and almost cried because of me uh, made my parents really wake up to realize what has this been like? Mm. And then the final clue for them was one day they had received the advice, you know what? He, you may need to take him back to South Korea and see for yourself what it was like to be in that environment. So that way you can better understand what he endured. And so my parents came to me and asked me, would you like to go back to South Korea? We'll go with you and we can, you know, we can visit and see what, the, what was like for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said that I absolutely went into a rage Mm. uh, saying that I would not ever go back there again unless I was flying the bomber that would drop the nuclear bomb on Korea and destroying that country. And that kind of reiterated to them that maybe it wasn't such a happy place after all. Right. (laughs) Small clue. Small clue. (laughs) So that was kind of how it all started. And, uh, you know, but. You know, it's a, it was again. It was a hard start for my parents. Today, fortunately, there are so many more resources. There's a lot of advice. There's great books. There's great science. There's great breakthroughs. There are support groups. There's organizations that have said that have made it so much easier. And you know, Kelly, after 25 years, will probably tell you I am still nowhere near the most healthy, well-adjusted husband anybody woman could desire to have. Of course, but I'm still. You know, I am trainable and teachable. Um, I am house trained. No, but you know, it's. You know, having grown up in that type of an environment, uh, she'll also tell you that I'm probably the most non, um, the most non-white, non-white white. <laughs> the most white non-white. He's the most non-white white man that you will ever meet, people. And what she means by that is the fact that you know, I love America. We have so many warts and wrinkles here in America. Let's face it. We have so many things that we have issues here within the country. Yet, this is the land that provided me with an opportunity to grow up, to get an education, to be healthy, to have opportunities. I mean, this is a life that I could have never imagined in my wildest dreams. I often say that the worst day I've ever had in America is so much far better than the best I ever had before I was adopted. Mm. And so because of that, you won't find anybody who loves America and is more passionate about America than I am. The land of opportunity here truly was something that I lived and experienced. And so I'm also very passionate about adoption and orphan care. That's the reason why I've been on the board of the Christian Alliance for Orphans for almost seven years now there's adoption and orphan care there's fraught with issues and there are many gaps and holes and adoption is not for everybody orphan care is not for everybody however there's something that we can all do about it so that we can truly change someone's life in ways that is far beyond them and something that they could not do on their own so it's clearly an area that i'm passionate about simply because i've been there lived there and i'll tell you that this side of the journey is so much better doesn't mean that it's, it's been an easy one, but it's uh, it's been wonderful. And having uh, a family who comes alongside and s- supports you and loves you unconditionally is 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 a wonderful step. But then for as going through the adult life, I mean, you know, if let's face it, us guys, if we ever grow up, if we do eventually grow up at some point, but it takes a while, and so that can impact the marriage relationship as well. So for women who are married to somebody who is adopted, or who are thinking about getting married to somebody who is adopted. It's, 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 a, it's a, Kelly will tell you, it is a crazy ride because part of the healing process, part of the attachment, part of the growing up and just kind of being able to uh, become the person that really 
you can be is a journey, is a process, and it's something that doesn't happen overnight, and it's not something that can be done by yourself. So having not saying that don't get married, I'm just saying because having a loving, supporting spouse who's going to see you through that and love, have that same unconditional love, it's going to be challenging for them. But through it, it does, uh, you know, it does it basically help someone to, again, be healed and made whole. That is so powerful. That is just, uh, there's so much depth just to your story alone. And before we move into talking about um, adoption, more generally speaking, Corey, I'm just so curious. I my, one of my cousins is also uh, South Korean. She was adopted from the hospital, as you were talking about, maybe the same circumstance that your little sister was. And so, I feel such a special connection and to to the story that you're telling here. I'm curious if you guys ever do um, anything to explore your Korean heritage, especially now that you have children who are a quarter Korean. Does that play a role in your current family life? Is it something that has that you've been able to heal enough maybe to come around to? Or um, is it not something that you're interested in as an adult? So that's a great question, Megan. And it's a it's it is a journey, right? So when I'm growing up, my background was something to hide. My background was something to overcome. My background was this shameful thing, if you will. Mm-hmm. Again, that's part of this, this, the psyche of growing up as an outcast. And it was a culture I hated, frankly. Okay. I didn't want anything to do with a culture that had been so abusive, so critical and had, you know, thrown me out. And so, um, I had a very much a visceral reaction and did not want anything to do with that culture whatsoever. And it's interesting because, you know, because of the way I look, I mean, I'm not the typical Asian male. I'm six foot one, 200 pounds. So I'm a little bigger than the typical Asian male. I don't look, I mean, I look more Hawaiian than anything else. So most of the comments I get are, what are you? Mm, right. right. Very polite, friendly type question, right? Yes. What are you? Uh. It's a taxonomy classification question versus anything else. I'm a curiosity. But, you know, growing up, I didn't want that. And even though other Asians would come up and were curious, like, are you one of us? It's like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it took a long time for me to even come to grips with my heritage, if you will, and mm-hmm. who I am, who I was. And... Um, and it took a long time, even becoming a part of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, where my story is very visible now. And it's, I've, you know, spoken in front of the annuals conference multiple times where, it, you know, it, it was, that was even a healing process where coming to grips with this isn't something that I need to avoid. It is not mm-hmm. something that's a weakness. It's something that I can actually share and help others now. Mm-hmm. So because of my story, I can help others. And it's not something that I just hide from or, you know, selfishly hold. I can use it to better and help others, which then becomes something that I have that others don't, right? It's something that I can leverage that others can't, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The other thing was interesting is life comes full cycle. As, as you mentioned, I work for NGOs. And so I had a chance to, uh, for several years, work for uh, Feed the Children, the large international relief and development organization that's based out of Oklahoma City. Right, where Megan is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I better be careful what I say about Okies then. <laughs> now, so then, you know, and, and what's interesting is that while I was at feed the children, I had this amazing opportunity with doors opening that were like insane, that was completely not planned to actually start a program in North Korea of all countries. Oh, wow. So imagine just a few years ago, I'm on an airplane flying to Seoul for the first time going to a country because the last time I was there was I had been on a plane leaving Mm. Seoul to come to Minneapolis. Yes. And so flying Delta... 
versus the former Northwest right mm-hmm. Airlines, going back to Seoul, it was incredibly surreal. Landing in that country, it brought back a lot of me- memories that I had even forgotten, images I had forgotten, sights, smells, all of those types of things. But then I'm in North Korea, walking through orphanages, mm. looking at little orphans. It was just, again, life bringing full circle. And yes. so with those types of experiences today, I can relate to the culture. Today, I can go eat at an Asian restaurant. My wife will tell you I'm still terrible with chopsticks, but uh, regardless, <laughs> so I still have to use a fork. That's embarrassing to the blonde here who uses chopsticks. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. Um, but, you know, I, you know, and it's now I'm fine because it's, again, it's something that, again, I look at it as you know, some of the things that sometimes we hide from and run from, we can become something that we can use to help others and, again, becomes an asset in helping others. And so with that today, yes, I am comfortable with the culture. I am comfortable with who I am. And it's something if I can help somebody, if my story can help and I can provide insight, then then wonderful. Love that. I love that. Okay, now that we've kind of gotten to hear this this background and, again, just – Corey, your story is so, so powerful. Um, I kind of want to switch gears again so that we can talk through some of the myths, some of the misunderstandings, things that people who do not have adoption as part of their family story in any way may not know about this whole world that that is adoption. So Kelly, you have some myths that you've kind of collected and you're just going to kind of go through and talk us through some of this and maybe help correct um, some misinformation and help us to all have a better understanding about this topic. Right. And really, when Corey and I were talking about it, I said, maybe I should talk about this because before I met Corey, adoption was not a part of my family story. I was certainly the outsider, if you will, into this culture. And really, even I would say, because as he just said, when we got married, he would have said, oh, yeah, I was adopted, but it it doesn't affect me, whatever, it's in the past. So it wasn't something that we even thought about, probably for the first 10 years of our marriage. Now, it was to the detriment of our marriage. You know, like, in hindsight, we both see, hey, there were all sorts of, like, red flags here that we were just pretending weren't there. But at the same time, it wasn't something that we dealt with. Because of his work with the Christian Alliance for Orphans, I've really been the outsider brought in. Um, Sometimes, by the way, people ask if we have considered adopting, and kind of my joke answer, but it's serious really, is I already have my orphan. (laughs) I'm married to him. Um, So in that sense, I have learned a lot. And Corey, as he said, we have grown a lot together. There's been a lot of healing taking place in our marriage just because things weren't known when he was a child sure, um, and yes. weren't addressed. So anyway, here, here are some of the things that I feel like I used to maybe even believe about okay. adoption. The first might be that people are kind of looking for answers. They're looking for that like easy answer, the quantifiable, like, what should I do in this case? How does this work? How does this feel? And unfortunately, the very unsatisfying answer to that is there is no one answer for adoption and for foster care, orphan global care. Every single person, every orphan is unique. Every family is unique that they're being you know, adopted in or, or taken in by. So it's just going to differ so much. It's really hard to give that one answer. So even as we continue to talk about this, that's just a good thing for you guys to keep in mind. Corey can tell his story. You know, like he just said, for him, the answer, you know, to go back to your culture, identify with your culture was the exact wrong thing to do right. for his healing. For many other people, that would be the best thing that they could do. So it's just not that easy. It's not that simple to find one answer for that. Yeah, so I think in some ways, there are some general parameters. So think about it almost like the rules of grammar. There are some general parameters, mm-hmm. but 
there's an exception to every rule, right? And yes. so really it, the, where it comes down to is that while there may be some general parameters, don't assume that all the parameters are going to apply to each individual child. Mm-hmm. The right answer is do what is right for each individual child and their set of circumstances mm-hmm. where they are emotionally, where they are in the healing. Cause, cause the reality is even though when Kelly and I got married, I was 25, I would have said, of course, I'm a healthy, well-adjusted young man. Look at me. I'm a stud. The reality is everybody at some point in their life will have to go through this period of adjustment and this dealing with reconciliation, if you will, with their past and everything like that. And for guys, guys typically, it takes them longer later in life. Women, girls, whatever, will it, oftentimes will deal with it sooner. So while girls may go through it in their teen years and in, your, in their 20s, you know, let's face it, us guys, we don't start maturing until we're in our 50s and 60s. So it's just, oh, it takes <laughs> a little bit longer. It doesn't take that long. There's all these people out there that just fell over like, oh, no, there's no hope for me. Right. Well, here's another one. I feel like um, lots of times people will say, oh, these adopted kids are so much better off. Which, again, was Corey's story to some degree, right? You know, he came to America, he's on the streets, he probably wouldn't have lived much longer, honestly, if he hadn't gone to that orphanage. But really, it isn't always like this happy ending, especially for the kids and really for the families. You know, life after adoption is incredibly challenging. So if you are not a part of the adoption world, you might just see those really sweet pictures of, you know, those gotcha days when the parents go get the kids or when they get formally adopted in a courtroom. And it just looks so rainbows and unicorns. But that is really like one day. And when they come home, they have to deal with all of this trauma, all these things, their own family. There is so much going on there. I I heard somebody say, and this has really stuck with me, all adoption begins with loss. Hmm. All adoption begins with loss. So you as the adoptive parent might even be like, this is wonderful. I get to love this child. For that child, even if they were adopted from the hospital, they've lost so much to get to the point of of needing to be adopted. So that's, it's a really, it's kind of a hard thing. It's kind of a downer to think about it that way. But if you don't notice that all, if you don't, excuse me, if you don't realize that all adoption begins with loss, you kind of come at it from the wrong angle. Yeah, and I think that's where the work of, I can't recommend highly enough for people who are in, either interested in adoption, orphan care, or who have relatives or friends who have been adopted or been in orphans, is to really look at the work of Dr. Karen Purvis, because what she's been able to show is scientifically show prove that the the brain of an orphan, even if they've been adopted from a hospital, Mm-hmm. is mit- wired materially differently mm-hmm. than a biological child. And so if you know for a fact that, you know, a one type of equipment is wired completely different from another type of equipment, you probably wouldn't expect the same outcomes. Yet oftentimes we walk into, parents mm-hmm. will go into these situations thinking, I raise this child, I give them love, I show them all this, mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll grow up in the same way. And the reality is it is a completely different type of an environment. So, and it's the older the child has been, the more traumatic the background has been, mm-hmm. the quintessential, you know, adoption from hard places, et cetera, then the brains are even that much more wired differently. And so, you just cannot expect the same type of interactions and the same type of responses. So it is materially different. I mean, even people who have biological children, many children will say, all my kids are unique. They're all different. Mm -hmm. I got to treat all my kids differently. This is amplified. Mm -hmm. It's on steroids when you're dealing with orphans and adoption and foster children. In, In fact, I would say one of the other myths is that 
what these kids just need is love. That if I can just love them, then they will attach to me. Or right. that's probably how it works in these families. Maybe you as an outsider are looking in and you're saying, well, that's if they just love them, that's all that's needed. Right. And really what we have found, like Corey said, through really amazing research on the brain and just how things work is that a lot of times these kids are coming in. If you think about, is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? At the very bottom of that is like safety and your physical needs. And lots of times these kids did not get those needs met even if they were adopted as an infant. So they they have to get those needs met and trust that those needs are going to be met before they can even move up the ladder to things like love and attachment. So I think sometimes well-intentioned adoptive parents, if they're not well-equipped, will say, well, I'll just love the kid and they'll be fine. Where there's you have to start so much lower. It really is one of those things that's kind of a myth. It's not all they need. Start, they do need love. They do need attachment. But it's just not the same style of parenting that you would do. Exactly, because they're starting at a different place than right. than a biological child would be. So it completely makes sense right. that um, that, the, that that process is going to look so very different. Right. And the last one I wanted to mention is just one that I feel like I, I hear a lot from my adoptive friends, um, or even friends who do fostering or safe families, which we will hopefully talk about in a little bit, is the idea that people will say to them, oh, I could never do that. It would break my heart. And I think actually one of our awesomes, Johanna, she has kind of a great response to that, which is, it breaks mine too. You know, like just to do this doesn't mean they're heartless, which of course no one is actually trying to imply when they say that, like, well, it's a good thing you can do it because you're, you know, right. the tin man and you don't have any feelings. Obviously, it does break their heart. That is one of the things that adoption kind of requires. Um, it requires you as the hopefully healthy adult parent or foster parent to be the one who takes it yes. for this child, for the healing of this child. So she, Johanna also said that she has sometimes said, you know, it would be too hard for me to foster. I would get attached. And she said, that's the whole point is to show these kids that they can attach to a safe, trusted adult so that when they do go to their forever homes, they're, they're that much closer to healing. Does that mean that you as the parent have to shatter your heart in a thousand different ways? Yes, it does. But you are saying, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to put that part of me on the line for the healing of this child, for the well-being of this child. That is a tremendous sort of thing. So just so you know, if there are people in your life who've called to the holy work of adoption and fostering, that is something that they're dealing with mm. every day. Absolutely. Wow. Very powerful and definitely bringing some perspectives to this conversation that I think are going to be um, really new information for a lot of people. So, all right. Well, to prepare for this episode, we did reach out to the awesome community and asked for questions that we could post for Corey and that maybe Corey and Kelly can tackle together. You all showed up with so many questions and and we kind of went through and, and grouped these questions kind of together. So one of the big questions that often comes up when we're talking about the topic of adoption is what's the difference between international and domestic adoption? And, and it seems like in the past maybe five to 10 years, there's been such a wave towards people adopting internationally. And so kind of what's going on with that? What are the logistics of that? And um, yeah, if you can kind of walk us through what those two big differences look like. Sure. 
What's interesting is that when people talk about adoptions, for whatever reason, most people think internationally. Mm -hmm. Yet the reality is that uh, more children are adopted domestically than internationally. So, uh, for example, 2014 was the peak year in the U.S. for international adoptions. Okay. And that was roughly 23,000 children. Yet on average, roughly 35,000 children are adopted. And again, the numbers vary because what's considered adoption? For example... Uh, a, a step parent who adopts their mm, stepchild, sure. it counts into the overall adoption number, right? And so there's a lot of variabilities as what is the, uh, what are the adoptions, but, uh, the, um, the number of adopted children each year is actually more in the domestic than it is international. Uh, I think the international is more challenging. So maybe that's why sometimes people, um, are, uh, it, you know, it comes up more, but r- current year, roughly about 6,500. Children are adopted from international in the U.S. Okay. today. So it's actually a, a relatively small number. Uh, adoption in the U.S. is typically much easier, much simpler uh, than it is uh, from an international. It's a heck of a lot less expensive uh, as well. The international adoptions today, on average, run between twenty-five dollars to $40,000 and can be as high as $65,000 when you look at it from a all-in, fully loaded tr- expense perspective. And it can take quite a number of years. Um, and then in terms of adoption, you know, I think the big difference is, um, are you trying to adopt a specific type of child or is there a specific, uh, focal point of your adoption? You want to adopt a particular race, ethnicity, gender, age, you know, those mm-hmm. types of things that really plays into, you know, what are you individually passionate about, excited about, or, or feel what you feel is important to you. If it's a matter of, you know, I'm, I just want to adopt a child. I, you know, I, this is what I, this is what I'm passionate about. Then, you know, right now here in the U S alone, for example, there are 102,000 children who are eligible for adoption in the foster care system. Wow. Now, many of those kids are older. Mm-hmm. Many of them may have uh, cha- uh, medical challenges or, you know, social behavioral challenges. Unfortunately, many of them are uh, older girls. And where that's a tragedy is the fact that oftentimes the foster system can be the biggest conduit for the uh, this, uh, sex trade uh, because girls get uh, are, can get taken into situations that are not safe for them and uh, they're funneled into the human sex trade. And so that's a tragedy when you think about all the, all these young, young girls and, um, roughly 20,000 children age out of the foster system in the U.S. uh, every single year. Wow. So if you want an infant, if you want a baby, you know, which is kind of the quintessential vision of adoption, right? You get this little baby. Most of the times that's more of the international where you can say, I want this. Mm-hmm. But if it's really more, it's a matter of I'm open to adoption. I'm willing to consider, you know, a lot of different choices or I want to adopt children who aren't being adopted. That adult, those types of adoptions can actually happen very quickly because, you know, whether they have Down syndrome, whether they have a medical condition, mm-hmm. even in inter- whether, you know, maybe it could be cured through medical mm-hmm. attention. Mm-hmm. But think about it, in the in international, oftentimes these countries, the only kids now that they'll put up for adoption are the children that nobody else wants. Mm-hmm. The outcasts, like, you know, the, the orphans, the, uh, again, uh, some type of disability or health, whatever have you, that they can't afford to take care of. Those types of the, cho- those are children are available for adoption on a much shorter window. Typically, it's not as nearly as expensive. So it really is a matter of what your, where your heart is and what you're passionate about when you look at the type of adoption. So it's, there's a, there's a lot that goes into actually selecting 
whether you want to do domestic, international, gender, type, etc. So I, one interesting thing in what you were just saying, Corey, is the difference in numbers when you were talking about in 2014, there was over 20,000 children adopted um, from international places into the U.S. down to, did you say 6,400? Yeah. So what's going on there? Why the big difference in numbers there? Sure. There's uh, Part of it is geopolitics, and mm-hmm. part of it is also um, the is this really the best thing for the children? Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is, you know, so geopolitics, for example, Russia has uh, pulled back on mm-hmm. international adoptions pretty dramatically. And whether it's because of, you know, uh, social pride, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. a country that's putting up children for adoption is basically saying these children, we're not able to take care of them or we're not going to take care of them, whatever have you. There can be a pride issue component to it, right? And then to have them adopted by America is like, well, is America a better country? So there can be some of those types of dynamics. Uh, there was a situation, it's called an unwind where a child was who was adopted was then the parents said, we don't want them anymore. And so there was an unfortunate story where an American couple adopted a child from Russia and then basically sent the child back to Russia. Mm. And so uh, uh, Putin really used that as the here's we, we will d- take better care of our children than obviously America will. So they've closed. China has changed quite a bit in terms of what they're doing on the adoption front. And that was a, a, a country that had a tremendous number of children. Some African countries have changed um, their adoption policies and uh, a focus on trying to do more of taking care of the children themselves. Central America, the same type of thing. Part of it is also is cultural. There are some really weird cultural beliefs in other parts of the world where, I mean, and myths where, for example, there's one country where they feel that children who are sent up, put up for adoption are sent to America and those kids are cannibalized. And there, you know, there's a curse, you know, things like that, where that those cultural myths have now kind of gotten to the point where now that has changed. But the other thing that's moving is, and is, it is a truly dark component, is that adoption internationally became such, unfortunately, a lucrative business that it set up the an underground for adoption, meaning mm. uh, or children were taken from parents mm. and put into the adoption system. You basically, you know, it had the equivalent of today's puppy mills, right? Where you've got children, where because again, if you're, you know, they can cost upwards of 65000 U.S., that's an amazing amount of money internationally. Right. And then for some countries, $50,000 per child, that's a great lucrative business. So there's this massive underground and black market, if you will, that has that has really spurred. And so because of it, uh, we have to be a lot more careful about, are these children truly coming from a situation mm-hmm. that is adopted? Because we don't want to foster that type of mm-hmm. an environment, right? And so the everything from the US State Department to um, the uh, uh, U.S. adoption agencies doing a better job of really vetting and making sure Mm -hmm. that these are legitimate situations. All of that has kind of together has, uh, has, uh, you know, has come about in a result that there's such a significant decrease from the peak of 2014 down to today where, you know, again, roughly 6,500 international adoptions. And I would add that one of the things that even happened, and I, I think even some of our own awesomes had experienced this, is that there were just even cultural misunderstandings in some countries where parents that were giving the children up for adoption, there wasn't a real understanding in their culture of what we mean when we're saying adoption is that you are relinquishing rights to this child forever and they will go. They have a cultural practice of a type of adoption where they go to live with someone else because you can't afford them right now, but they come back. So we're just starting to realize this and a lot of American agencies were realizing that 
through the translation, all these parents are like, okay, so now when is my child coming back? Mm, and they're right. like, they're not. Right. And so just we're talking about the same thing, but we didn't mean the same thing. Mm. And so, again, I think a lot of agencies, again, the government put a, a big break screech on the process and said, whoa, you know, we have dived into this. And even I would say even the church, the American church, you know, with a good heart, good intentioned, said we want to we want to jump on this problem. This shouldn't be. But we were creating as many problems as we were solving. Mm. And so there has been um, a let's step back and reevaluate and make sure, like Corey said, that we're going to vet this properly so that things are done well. And the kids who really, truly need homes are going to get them, and the kids who maybe can stay in their home countries can stay there. Well, another positive to that, because it is not just all dark, there is a positive message, too, is the fact that, um, as Kelly referenced, there's two different scenarios. I mean, one is um, children who have no family, right? What, so they're, you know, they're, 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 they're truly abandoned or they truly have no family. Um, okay, in that type of a setting, adoption may be a wonderful thing for them. If it's a something situation where um, a family is struggling financially, but a child has a family, all right? Well, I just mentioned, you know, international adoptions can be very expensive. Well, is it better for us as Americans than just be the saviors of the world and to rescue all these children? And it costs upwards of $65,000 or on average twenty-five dollars to $40,000. Again, $40,000 U.S. may be more than enough for a family in Africa to be able to raise their children mm-hmm. if they had support and resources. Mm-hmm. So instead of ripping that child out of a family environment in which they could thrive and be happy and be and be healthy, is it better to provide the resources so they can better take care of their own children or have more means to do so, right, than just saying, we're the answer, we're just going to Mm-hmm. take the children and yeah. adopt them. I've definitely noticed a shift in the adoption conversation within the church from a few mm-hmm. years ago being um, almost completely focused on adoption being the only answer to now more conversations happening about what can we do to keep families intact? How can we support families in these hard places so that families do remain together, that children can stay with their families of origin. So it's definitely a shift in conversation. Um, One of the issues, obviously, that would come along with an international adoption is then when children are are adopted into this culture, dealing with the intercultural and transracial issues then that are naturally going to come up, whether or not that child has come from a, a hard place, just kind of fitting into um, a, a culture where people may look very different from them. So I was wondering if you guys had any insight to give her some answers or commentary on that um, general topic. So that is actually a, a very um, significant um, consideration. And it, it is a, a big, it is a big factor, actually. Uh, you know, when I was adopted, um, and I was adopted to Minnesota, which is, you know, the land of Scandinavians and Germans, right? right? So <laughs> everybody it has blonde hair and blue eyes, right? And so coming here from South Korea, of course, I stuck out like a sore thumb because I was so different. And, you know, you know, obviously other kids who are African-American or others, they, you know, they culturally, they may not fit. And, you know, it, a lot of it depends on where in the U.S. So you do have to be cognizant of that. I mean, my gosh, just recently, 
Kelly and I lived in southern Minnesota, where it is so homogenous there that when I told people that I was a minority partner in a business, I had to explain I didn't mean from a per- I meant from a percentage perspective, not from a <laughs> nationality perspective, right? right? But that was the culture down there. It's just so very much Scandinavian and German that you stick again. It sticks out. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if we were living in you know the Bay Area, California, where there's a lot more diversity anyway, it may not be such a uh, such an issue. So parents do need to consider. Where do they live? Where do they go to school? Where do they go to church? What kind of a community are they involved in? What are the circles mm-hmm. that they're typically involved in? Because that may need to change. So when you talk about adoption and foster care and orphan care, you really do have to give it consideration, not from taking the child into your world, but you may even need to consider, do I need to take a step into their world or is there a, half, a happy meet in between that we need to do? Because I know of some parents who are white who adopted an African, uh, you know, a black child and they moved into a black community. They started yes. going to a black church. They went to, the kids went to a predominantly black school. They may need to do something like that. Again, it goes back to the comment that Kelly made earlier about uh, uh, understanding the uniqueness of each child in each situation mm-hmm. and doing what is best for that. Because just because you're willing to embrace that child into your life, may not necessarily be the same in the circles or in the environment that you're in where they're going to be an obvious you know situation where they stick out like a sore thumb like I did again you know my parents are about as white minnesotan as you can get and so I don't look anything like them right mm-hmm. and so I do stick out like a sore thumb and when I was growing up my I can't tell you the number of times my mother would get looks or comments like Hey, is your husband a China man? You know, that type of thing, because people would look at me and say, obviously, I'm different. And then now when you look into some cultures with the the biracial African-American, you know, white, black issues, that is a very much a reality, not one to avoid and not one to try to, uh, uh, you know, say, you know, that's not for us. But it is something you have to be very circumspect about and intentional that we need to consider not just an adjustment for the child, but may have to be a big adjustment for us as parents as well. I would even add that one of the things that I really learned being at Orphan Summit, which is the summit the Christian Alliance for Orphans puts on every year, people can go. It's really an umbrella organization for a lot of different ministries and agencies, anybody that deals with orphan care, just to kind of share best practices and learn from each other. So I would sit, and this was really the beginning for me of recognizing, you know, white privilege and that sort of thing. I would sit in rooms where Corey was on a panel of transracial kids, and they would say, you know, even if they were adopted, as infants. And as far as they knew, they were white. Sure. You know, like that's why we joke with Corey. We say he's the whitest non-white guy that you'll ever meet is because they feel white. Mm-hmm. But when they're not with you, when they are at school or, you know, when they grow up, then the culture doesn't see them as white. Mm-hmm. They don't know that you're a Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know, they see your skin color. And so even for some of these kids, they would say it was a little bit of a rude shock mm-hmm. to be in middle school or into high school and have people start making comments and to realize that no matter how you feel, no matter how attached you are to your family, hopefully that's happening and it's wonderful, you will always be perceived by the culture First, by your skin tone. Mm-hmm. So parents having to be equipped to help these kids, you know, like he said, if you need to, they need to be around other people who can help them navigate that, that you, if you are white, are never going to be able to do. You're going to be able to support them, but you can't say, been there, done that. You need to surround them with people who can say, been there, done that, that can bridge some of those gaps, that can help them to, to feel normalized um, because it's just one of those weaknesses. I, I remember sitting on a panel one time and a parent said, 
how can we protect our kids from these, you know, hurtful things that people will say about them being adopted or about them being of a different race? And one of these, it was, I think, even a panel of like teenage college students, they're pretty young, but it was a wise statement. And he said, you can't protect them. You can only prepare them. And really, that's parenting advice for anybody, whether you have adopted kids or not. But, you know, in that sense, you as a adoptive parent dealing with kids who have already so much to deal with, really helping them to be prepared for this world. And that transracial mix is a huge one in today's world. And I know something that so many of our awesomes who've adopted and foster, they have such a burden in their heart for to say, I want to make this as easy as possible for my child. Mm. That's so good. That's some great wisdom. Um, just in closing, I would love to hear from you all. There are many, many of our awesomes who are listening, whose hearts may be very moved by the whole idea of adoption or fostering, whose hearts are breaking for children who do not have um, the the family environment, the love and support um, that could be provided through adoption or foster care. But for whatever reason, and everyone has a variety of reasons, they can't actively participate in adoption or fostering. What can those of us who are listening, what can we do to support the families who are? And, and maybe even take that question a little bit more global. On a global level, what can we be doing to support children who are in vulnerable situations throughout um, or, or around the globe? Sure. I mean, earlier I had made a comment that um, adoption can be hard. So the first thing people have to do is you have to count the costs. And it's not just financial, it's emotional, it's physical, it's you know, just all of those types of things. So you have to count the costs. It's, while it can be a blessing, it's gonna be a, a significant challenge. So you may have a heart for orphans, but that doesn't mean you should adopt. Okay. However, while adoption is not for everyone, and let's face it, foster care is not for everyone. There are some wonderful people who are foster cares. There's wonderful organizations like Safe Families, if you want to uh, consider the foster care uh, scenario, or as Kelly mentioned, the Christian Alliance for Orphans, you can go to their website and get some wonderful information about adoption and orphan care. But here's the thing, while orphan adoption and foster care may not be for everybody, what everybody can be a part of the orphan outreach because a adoptive family, what they need more than anything else is post-adoptive support. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So mm-hmm. oftentimes what happens, unfortunately, is that you know peop- the, the, a couple says well, they're going to adopt. Everybody gets excited for them. They support them. They encourage them. They rally them, etc. They get the baby. They get the child. And it's a wonderful thing. But then people kind of forget about it. Now, when a... A couple has gives birth to a child, there's maternity leave, there's paternity leave. Friends and family and neighbors and church groups uh, provide meals. They say, can we go grocery shopping? Can we do this for you? Can we shovel the driveway for you? Can we do this, that, whatever have you? And so for a, a, a relative, you know, short period of window of time, mm-hmm. there's this kind of post, uh, you know, a, a delivery support that's provided to that family, Right. Now, in the adoption situation, take that, that's very much needed, and you're gonna to need to expand it, mm. right? So the number one piece of advice is, if you, are, you have a heart for orphans, you have a heart for this, but you realize that adoption and foster care is not for you, find someone who it is and support them. Okay. okay? So like my, going back to my parents, what saw them through 
was growing up, we went to this little church and I was basically adopted by the whole church. (laughs) Okay. My parents received a tremendous, I mean, it was the small church, not a lot of money, you know, a a lot of older people. And it's like, was not your quintessential, you know, you know, we can go ahead and resource and equip. But what they did is they came around my parents so that my parents knew they were not in this alone. Right. And that constant moral support, that constant support of can we provide this for you? Can we do this for you? you do you need a night out? Do you oftentimes maybe even something sm- simple and small, but that posted. So in the orphan realm today, orphan ministry realm today, what we've identified is probably the number one issue in terms of orphan care is post-adoptive support. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you cannot do this alone. You know, the old cliche, it takes a village. Well, in the case of orphan care, it takes it takes two villages. So <laughs> you cannot do it alone. So don't try to go out and do it alone, but try to find where you can provide that support because that is where it's going to be uh, particularly meaningful. Meaningful, and that's something that anyone and everyone can do. Okay. So good. That is so good. Uh, what do you think this might look like for people who, again, are, you know, we, we see videos and movies and hear stories of children in other countries who um, are in destitute, devastating situations. And at the same time, we want to be able to, to provide, you know, some kind of measure of relief or hope um, for the future. What, how can we be involved um, on a global level? Sure. And in that case, what I would say is, um, you know, you know, as Americans, we typically have this mentality, we're going to go and just solve all the world issues sure. ourselves, right? We're going to sure. do it ourselves. Well, the, the best thing to do is instead of just starting yet another organization or just start yet another movement, starting yet another cause, is find those who are doing a good job. Find those who have already have boots on the ground, who have already gone through a lot of the, and see what you can do to best support them. I mean, there are some wonderful organizations who are working to ensure that children can grow up with their families. Mm -hmm. And then if there are children who are abandoned or without families, what's the best way to support them? And it may not necessarily even be adoption. It may be kinship where they find an extended family or it may be more a tribal or or neighbor type environment, right? Which is still good for the child. And so there are other, so finding good organizations that you can trust who are going to do a good job. And that's the reason why I joined um, the Alliance, uh, Christian Alliance for Orphan because it's an association where there are a number of different organizations from throughout the world that are a part who are vetted, who have been kind of, you know, the good house seal of keeping seal of approval, so to speak, right? Where you can find, uh, you know, organizations like that and then support them and then say, how can I best come alongside? And so that way, whatever support or resources I can provide can go to, in a manner that's both effective and also efficient. And again, it doesn't, it can, that's whether it's international or as well as whether it's domestic, because there's some wonderful organizations uh, like Safe Families, as I mentioned earlier, that's in the foster care ring, where Come alongside them and say, how can I help you? How can I support you? Because I have a heart and a passion for these children, even though I'm not in a position to adopt or foster care myself. Okay, that is super helpful. I'm so thankful. We will include links to lots of these organizations that Corey has mentioned today in the show notes if you would like to follow up and do a little research of your own to see what might be a good fit for you. Corey, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for giving us all of this information, answering so many questions about adoption that I know is going to be so helpful for our community. Um, I know we're going to have lots of follow-up discussion, Kelly. So if you want to find us on social media to follow up this conversation, Kelly, remind people where we can find you all around the web. 
Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly at Lovewell and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Lovewell blog. But you could maybe also find my husband, too. What? Do you want to give your Twitter account out? <laughs> you don't have to. Conversations <laughs> a bunch of ENFPs. <laughs> okay. So, and you may not contact my husband anywhere. Even though he's on social media, he would like to have no more words. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, we shouldn't make her laugh. Okay. I've used up Sorry. two weeks of words today. Come on. Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. You can find the show on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show. We're on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. And you can always find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremend. Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.